Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. God willing, on Easter we'll have either our last or our next to last sermon on Matthew. And uh, <clears throat> this morning we arrive at the next to last chapter, Matthew 27, 1 to 10. We're now moving into the trial and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the main section that we're going to deal with this morning is the end of Judas. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, just a comment about some of what is said in this text. There are a couple of things here that are hard to put in harmony with what is said in Acts about Judas and his end, and also with what we find in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Zechariah. And so if you read commentaries that are modern, you'll find a huge amount of the commentary is taken up trying to resolve the problems of the text. So I could spend time this morning saying to you, well, this is what this unbeliever says, but here's the answer to that unbeliever, and this is what this unbeliever says. And think if... A woman was teaching her daughter to cook, and that's not sexist, it's reality, all right? If a woman is teaching her daughter to cook, and she spends the entire time leading up to dinner explaining the mistakes that her daughter could make with a recipe, will there be a meal on the table? No. You can't spend your life studying error. I remember when I first went into ministry, I subscribed to a Godless publication from Madison's uh, uh, atheist community called Free Thought Today. And I began to read it, and after about two issues, I realized this was absolutely insane. I was called to shepherd God's flock, not to study, to put under a microscope the excrement. of the University of Wisconsin. Some of you have to do it. But it shouldn't be how we spend our time on the Lord's Day. Now, it would be 
tempting for you to think that the reason that I'm not going to deal with the problems of the text is that I'm afraid of them. And I want you to know I'm not. I'm not afraid of them at all. As a matter of fact, the reason the commentaries have so much text on the problems of the text is that there are so many solutions. In other words, it's very easy to solve the problems of the text. One of the problems of this text is that Matthew quotes Jeremiah, all right, when he's actually quoting Zechariah. And so he says Jeremiah. And it's fascinating. I wasn't going to do this, but I am going to do it. Listen to this. This is, I love this. Okay. Okay, here's Calvin on the problem. All right. Calvin says this. The passage itself plainly shows that the name of Jeremiah has been put down by mistake instead of Zechariah. There you have it. And immediately, we're so trained to be critical of God, to be critical of his word, that we think, oh, Calvin, don't say that. But what's Calvin saying? Now, who put the word Zechariah down, or Jeremiah down instead of Zechariah? Matthew, right? Do you know that two of the oldest manuscripts don't have any name for a prophet there, but just the prophet? So who put the name Jeremiah down there. We don't like to think that there are actually fallen men in between the original autographs, which are inspired and without error, and us today. But many, many people in America today have been suckered into reading the New Living Translation and today's New International Version, and they don't have the text of Scripture because it's all been changed so that feminists won't be angry. And you say, oh, but it's the Bible. I say, yes, it's the Bible, but... Thousands of words have been changed intentionally. And so what you have to realize is when we say that the Bible is the word of God written and that every word is true, that does not mean that every word in the Bible that you hold in your lap is true because many fallen men have intervened and inserted themselves between what was originally written and what you have. Now, does this mean you can't trust the book that you're holding? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Even a gender-neutered Bible is the Word of God. But it's, it's, if you're stupid enough to read a Bible that panders to you precisely where you want the Bible to pander to you today, you're an idiot. Right? And so when we come to this text and we see that it says Jeremiah, it could be that the original text doesn't say Jeremiah. Two of the oldest manuscripts don't have Jeremiah there. Another thing, the word Jeremiah and the word Zechariah differ in just a tiny way. And so you could have a scribe copying, because that's how they used to do it. They didn't have Xerox. All right? You could have a scribe seeing one name where it was actually another one, and that got in very early and then was copied over. And I could keep talking forever about the solutions to the apparent problems in this text, and I've only mentioned one. But there's meat, so let's get on to the meat, all right? And let the unbelievers argue among themselves, right? Because that's what they're good at. Otherwise, you wouldn't have refereed journals. All right, that was a joke. 
All right. And you wouldn't have the Evangelical Theological Society. Now, the first thing to notice about the text is that it says, Now when morning came. And that's pointing back tonight, isn't it? Now when morning came. And I want you to think at the beginning of this time of studying God's word about darkness and light, about night and day. Because it's very, very helpful to realize that all of life, all, all of reality, all of flesh, all of organic, holistic existence, incarnational, all of it has significance. And that consistently in Scripture, we are told that wickedness and night are together. That darkness is opposed to light. And that evil men love darkness. Now, what happened during the darkness? What happened during the darkness with our Lord was that the Jewish religious leaders found their Benedict Arnold. They followed him to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and following his giving away his Lord Jesus with a kiss under cover of darkness at night, they falsely arrested the only truly innocent man who has ever lived. It was dark when they arrested him. It was dark when they seized him. It was dark when they led him away to the home of their leader, Caiaphas, where all the religious leaders were gathered awaiting their prey. They were bent on death that night, and under cover of darkness, they ran a bunch of witnesses through trying to come up with the perfect perjury that would give them unjust cause to kill our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the deep darkness of late night when all of them, that's what Scripture says, all of them spit in Jesus' face, beat him with their fists, and slapped him. Such courage. It was under cover of darkness that they threatened and mocked the Lord of the universe. But no one saw. It was night. It was dark. There was no risk of the people knowing their wicked plot and perversion of justice yet. That would come in the morning. And then they must have things sewn up and transfer Jesus to the Roman authority, Pilate. But then things wouldn't be so dangerous during the day when the people could know what the religious leaders were doing to the man they held to be righteous. It wouldn't be so dangerous because Jesus would then be under the authority of the Roman Empire. So at night, when they wouldn't be seen, that's when they did their wickedness. When morning came, things had to get more legitimate, more scrupulous, more fair, more proper, more judicious, more closely hypocritical. That's when they would stop suborning perjury and come up with the real reason and ask Pilate to handle it. It was interesting, if you're a lawyer, you've probably at one point or another, you've read uh, a lawyer's explanation of what went on that night. Um, 
Similarly, if you're a doctor, you might want to know the clinical definition or the clinical uh, explanation for Jesus' death or for the death by crucifixion. Again and again and again, the legal safeguards and procedures that were in place to protect innocent men were discarded in this process. One of them was that you had to uh, give the verdict on the second day. You couldn't do it the first day. So uh, what? He's, he's arrested late at night. And then the next day, the sentence is given. So were there two days? No, it wasn't even 24 hours when we pick up the text today. Another one was that the sentence of, uh, uh, at the end of the trial had to be given during light. It couldn't be given at night. It couldn't be under cover of darkness. It had to be given during the day. And they do follow that. But, of course, when the whole thing is based on getting people to perjure themselves, the whole thing is based on coming up with false witnesses. In other words, when you've determined the end result and then try to put in place the reasons for that end result, and the end result is the death of an innocent man, is it a surprise that you see that every part of the process is corrupted? All right? And it is important that we see that all of it is done under cover of darkness. In Job 24, we read, There are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, No eye will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their mourning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. As I was preparing, I remembered actually just the title of a song. I, don't, I went on YouTube and listened to the song. I don't remember ever hearing it. But some of you, I'm sure, are thinking of the song, which is the Edgar Winter Group, right? They only come out at night. The shadows breathe with a venom like no other. A silent evil where there shouldn't be another. No, no, I feel them lurking, hear them howling in the shadows, wreaking havoc on your perfect world. They are the tricking trolls. They got the bell that tolls. Flash at the edge of your sight. They only come out at night. They only come out at night. In John 8, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I've often said that John 3.16 should never be memorized alone. Let me read a little bit from John 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Do you know that by heart? Every one of us should know that by heart. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. 
And so we read, when morning came, they had had their darkness, they had done their wicked deeds. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. So that's the result. He's going to be put to death. And so what they're trying to do, they don't have the power of capital punishment. They have to go to Rome for that. And so they're trying to come up with a system whereby they can give justification to Pilate for killing Jesus, for executing him. And it's difficult because they despise Pilate. And it's difficult because Pilate despises them. And he despises their religion. So they can't come to Pilate with a charge of blasphemy. Pilate doesn't care. Blaspheme all you want. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Note that it says all the chief priests and the elders of the people. The chief priests were the religious authority explicitly, whereas the elders of the people were the senior representatives of the people holding a less religious and more, we might say, civil authority. But with the Jews, as Rome well knew, nothing ever fall, fell far from their religion. And so as we study this 27th chapter of Matthew, the guilt of the whole world before the perfect Son of God will be our theme, as it is Matthew's theme. Matthew does not demonize anyone in his written record. He gives a simple truth that everyone has their part in the act of killing the perfect Lamb of God. Peter, James, and John slept in the hour of Jesus' need. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Peter denied him three times. The other disciples abandoned him. The chief priests and scribes and leading elders worked hard to get false witnesses who could justify a death sentence, and they slapped him, and they punched him, and they spat on him. And many Jews came forward and gave false testimony against him. And next week we will see that the Jewish people themselves had their part as they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, verse 3 is an editorial aside. So we drop the story here of Jesus' trial and Pilate, and we pick up Judas, and Judas meets his end. With verse 3, we're told, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned. Now, who does he refer to? It doesn't refer to Judas. It refers to Jesus. When he realized that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas' conscience assaulted him, and he had a change of mind and heart. When? It was when he saw that Jesus had been condemned. Now, when I was young, there was a, a, what they called a rock opera. I've never been quite sure what opera is, let alone a rock opera. But it was called Jesus Christ Superstar. And the most memorable thing about Jesus Christ Superstar is the sympathetic portrayal presentation it gives of Judas. 
And if you go and read commentaries on Scripture on this text specifically, you'll find again and again all kinds of reasons trotted out about why Judas would have betrayed his master. He's one of the twelve. Jesus loved him. He spent three years in the most intimate relationship with Jesus. So why would Judas betray Jesus? I've told you often that the reason I recommend John Calvin more than any other interpreter of Scripture to read is you're studying Scripture to put alongside um, the text is that Calvin is so disciplined in not saying things beyond what the text says. And he always knows what my mind is, is going to do. And he always says, wait, 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 don't think like that. Don't ask that question. It's not answered in the text. Be content with what the Holy Spirit has chosen to give you. And don't try to find out things that God has not chosen to reveal. And so let me ask again. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Why did he do it? Money, 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 money. It's not complicated. But it's humiliating to see that that's the reason he did it. Isn't it? Because none of us like to think of ourselves as being so crass. Oh, no, there must have been some grand delusion that Judas lived. You know. And so typically what people say is that Judas was hoping to force Jesus' hand. You know, that if, if Judas set it up in such a way that Jesus saw that his back was against the wall, then finally the power of God would come out and he'd lead the revolution against Rome. Not a word of it in Scripture. What we read about in Scripture is that Judas was offered money, that he took money, that he delivered on the goods he'd been paid to deliver on, and that afterwards, when his conscience assaulted him, guess what? The money appears. We also told, and you have to assume the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing, right? You have to assume that. We're told that earlier he was stealing from the purse, the common purse that the disciples lived off of. And we're also told that his theft was bound up with him acting as if he was very concerned about the poor when the perfume was wasted anointing Jesus. In other words, we have everything we need to come to the conclusion that money is unbelievably dangerous and central to the weighing, to the testing, and to the fall and to the salvation of immortal souls. We even have Scripture saying that the love of money is the root of all evil. But we just don't like to think of ourselves that way. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not so easily bought and sold. I have principles. It's amazing how convinced we Americans are that we have principles. Somebody suggests that one of the reasons we're at war in the Gulf is that we want to protect the oil. And everybody, oh, no, it could never be. Somebody suggests that a preacher shouldn't be trusted because he gets 
millions of dollars in royalties for his book. Oh, how could you question that? Somebody suggests that the, the religious leaders today that have the highest positions or paid the most money have their pictures most ubiquitous across Christian publications are the ones we should trust least. And we go, but God's blessing is on them. And we get a little trifold brochure trying to get us to come to a conference. And what does it tell us? It tells us that they have this number of people in their church and their church's budget has this much money and and. It's just thrown in the article that they have a fitted suit. We don't like to think that it's just filthy lucre that did that did uh, Judas in, because we don't want to look at the temptation that money is to us. Money is a temptation. I've told you before that about the first 15 years of my marriage, you know how I processed my faith? I processed it through the cars that I bought. Do you know what the death of my cars was? When finally God dealt with me? Some of you know. My dear friend Phil Henry was working here. And Phil Henry offered me an Alexis LS400 from his father, stepfather, who had been instrumental in bringing Toyota to Evansville. And so Toyota, as an act of appreciation, had given him their finest car. Actually, it was leased. but And so when that car came up to be sold... His stepfather told Phil that he would give it to me at a very good price. And so guess what I did? Oh, my conscience was awful, but my justifications were many. And so I went down to Evansville and picked up an Alexis LS400. And my first clue should have been that when I got in the car and started driving back, Pink Floyd came on, and the song was comfortably numb. <laughs> Boy, it sounded good. <laughs> so I came back, and Steve Berenzi and I think Jim Hogue, if I remember correctly, it heard me say in a sermon that the first thing you should do when you get a new car is take a sledgehammer and hit one of the quarter panels so that it belongs to God and not to you. And so they made a joke about hitting that car. And they saw that all of a sudden the preacher had principles that were kind of the opposite of what he said, right? Well, I could tell you the whole story, but suffice it to say that by the time that car was gone, I had vomited it out. It was vomit. It got keyed. It got hit. It wouldn't sell. If I told you what I sold it for, you'd be sick. 
I vomited that car up. And then I had the privilege of coming to you as a congregation and saying, that was sin. I should never have owned that car. I'm sorry. I confess it is sin. And Judas, he betrayed the Lord. And what was the price? 30 pieces of silver. You think about what Judas thought he could do with that money. You know, he had great plans. He was going to use it to go out to restaurants. He was going to use it to put down a down payment on a good house. He was going to... But it was a tiny amount of money, really. Satan always offers us unbelievably dainty good things, you know. If you do this, you'll feel good, you know. Life will be nice. There are all these things offered to us if we cheat on our income taxes and if we take this job rather than that job because more money and if we are a woman, we get our degree and, and just work for a few years, you know? Just work for a few years. You have, you have plenty of years to have children. Just, just work, you know? And I am so tired of people saying to me, well, you're saying it's wrong for a woman to work. No, it's not what I'm saying. Every one of these things, you stand before God. He sees your heart. You will answer to Him. I'm not saying that every woman that works is sinful. And I'm not saying that every man that works is righteous. You stand before God. We buy a Lexus LS400. We sweet-talk an old woman, a widow. Why did Judas betray the Lord? Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Are there any of you here this morning who have betrayed your Lord, for 30 pieces of silver. Are there any of you? There are some of you who have betrayed your unborn children for 30 pieces of silver. This country is filled with women who have killed their unborn child for 30 pieces of silver. Many of you men who have betrayed your wife for 30 pieces of silver, you've committed adultery, and afterwards you vomit it up. But you can't get rid of it. You cannot get rid of it. Satan always says that sin will be sweet. Satan is a liar. And the price of sin is an awful thing. And he never, ever delivers the goodies that he tells you that he will deliver. He never does it. Never. But God always, 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 always is faithful to his promises.
And so here it is, the account of Judas' end. The end of the wicked. And if I were to ask how many of you have heard a sermon on Judas, probably less than five of you would raise your hands. And it's amazing how we think that the things that have been instructive to the church across all church history, the things upon which godliness has grown, are the things today that must not be mentioned. The Holy Spirit knows us and puts in the account of Scripture the end of Judas because it is the help that we need to be saved. Because it is a necessary part of our salvation. Now let me ask you a question. Is your mother saved? Is your son saved? Is your husband saved? Is your roommate saved? This is a great evangelical question. You know, start ticking off for me your family members and your best friends. Are they saved? Is Tim saved? Is Peter saved? Is Mary Lee saved? Is Joseph saved? Is Heidi saved? Is Nathan saved? Who's saved? Now, don't do it. But I want all of you that are saved to stand up. Okay, don't do it. But I want all of you that aren't saved to stand up. Who's saved? The whole question that evangelicalism is focused on. But you look across church history, you look in Scripture, and Scripture doesn't go around saying, he's saved, he's not, he's saved, he's not, he's saved, he's not. You know what Scripture says? (laughs) Do you know what Scripture says? Scripture says this. Well, here, I'll read it to you. Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says... Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, while a promise remains of being saved, okay? Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you, any one of you, may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. What happened to Judas? What happened to Judas? Did Judas hear the word? Was it united with faith? Therefore, let us hope. But that's not what it says. It says, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you, of me, may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said. You say, well, I believe. They say, how do you know? Did Judas believe? You say, no, but I believe. I say, how do you know? You say, because my mother told me that I prayed a prayer in vacation Bible school. I say, did the Spirit work? 
Did Judas never pray? For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Who heard the preaching? Who heard the proclamation of God's provision? They all did, right? And some failed to enter because of what? Did you hear what the text said? Because of what? And the way dispensationalists handle this, and the way Presbyterians and Baptists handle this, is they say, well, in the Old Testament, it was... Stephen, how would they... What do they say? You know. What do they say? Yeah, and the Old Testament was by works, and the New Testament is by faith. So you take this example, and you can just throw it out, because they were saved by works. So disobedience meant they weren't saved, right? That's what they would say, right? Then what on earth is this being used as an illustration for you and me today by the Holy Spirit for? What is the point of bringing that up? What's the point of having it recorded in Scripture if it's to make us without compunction of conscience? What is the point? You can go into my denomination's churches and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday hear nothing but grace preached. What is the point of the book of Hebrews? What is the point of the account of Judas? It is to make you fear. I've said this to you over and over again. There's a quote that's essential for you to not be perverted by evangelical culture. And it is this statement. And it's the key to solve a whole host of problems you have trying to mesh Scripture with what every Christian evangelical says today. And it is this quote. In the godly, fear and love embrace. There's no problem with fear. It's a gift from God. Some of you, like me, can remember a time when you fell into a sin that was so horrible that you knew your soul was hanging over hell. And fearing God, you repented. And it wasn't a repent a repentance that was without faith and hope. It wasn't a repentance that fled from God into hell. Seeking hell because you felt that it would... Take away the pain that you had here on earth. That's Judas. But it was a repentance that looked to God and said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your name. Make me a servant. And God heard your prayer. And that prayer was motivated not just by faith, but by fear. It's so sad to see fathers that try to raise their children so that their children won't fear them. It's awful because it lies about the character of God. No father should be a friend who isn't feared by his sons. 
Why? Because we are only fathers insofar as we reflect the Father God from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And if you come to passages like we're at today with Judas and you say, away from me, and you don't read it to your family if you have family devotions, and you can't handle thinking about the end of Judas because it's so negative. And, and listen, well, imagine saying to a Super Bowl watcher, you know, don't watch the Super Bowl because at the end it's so negative. And they say, well, my team's going to win. Yeah, but don't you have any compassion? Can't you put yourself in the locker room with a losing team? Well, my team's going to win. Everywhere in life, we have testimony to heaven and hell. Even in the NFL. And we're always, I'm not anti-abortion, I'm pro-life. I don't pick it. I work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I'm positive. Don't you get tired of having a preacher that's negative? (laughs) Come on. Tell me the truth. But without Judas, we don't have Peter, people. We don't have Peter. Judas is the backdrop that lets us see Peter. Do you understand this? Do you understand this? Peter did what? Peter denied. He cursed. He denied. Peter was worse because he said, never, never, never. Judas didn't say never, never, never. Peter didn't say to the death. Or Peter did say it, but Judas didn't say to the death. One of my favorite portions of Scripture is this. Um... But I have to give you the negative before I give you the positive, okay? So first I'm going to read from from Luke. Luke 22, having arrested him, Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance, right? Now enter into how despicable Peter is, right? Not in a self-righteous way, but in an identification, you know, like you do with a novel. You know, you identify with the characters, right? But Peter was following at a distance. Would you be following at a distance? You would be good among the disciples if you were falling at a distance because that would mean you hadn't sold them out for 30 pieces of silver and it would also mean that you weren't nowhere to be found. Peter was there, but at a distance. All right. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them and a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, this man was with him too. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. Is that you? Is that you? Is that you? Every one of you should say, yes, is that you? Is it you? Is it you? You say, no, I would have sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Is that why you're not saying yes? Woman, I don't know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. 
After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And do you remember what it says there? He went out and he wept bitterly. Tears are good. So then, after the resurrection, we read this. And this is what I said is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. You remember the disciples are out fishing. And they see a man on the shore. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Peter heard that it was his Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work. This is like one of my top 20 in Scripture. This next phrase. Now, how many of you know what the next phrase is? Come on, raise your hand. How many of you know what it is? Not word for word, but you know what it is. Oh, man. Abram Hess, who else? Raise your hand. I want to see him. Stephen, Woody, Caleb, John, Dan. Yeah, of course you know it, Rachel. You're a woman. Huh? Huh? Oh, <laughs> right on. <laughs> she told me to shut up. But, but you'd have to know it because you're Peter. Sin boldly. Repent boldly. You know? Okay. So when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. <laughs> yeah. Think of Judas. He threw himself to the end of the rope. And Peter threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So Peter's out in the boat, puts on his outer garment so he can get it wet too. He throws himself into the sea. He swims a hundred yards so that he can beat them to Jesus. So who has faith, Judas or Peter? Did Peter come in his righteousness? No. No. So who was saved? And when were they saved? Who was disobedient? So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. Simon Peter went up and threw and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. A little aside for you fishermen. The line did not break 
Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. How could he say that? He just betrayed him. Well, he hadn't betrayed him. He denied him. How could he say he loved him? the same way you and I say we love the Lord every day. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Okay, application, and we're done. Now, what are the applications of this text? Well, the first one is even more negative than Judas. Really, if you look at Scripture, it doesn't demonize Pilate. Pilate actually will come off as a fairly sympathetic character. Okay? And it really doesn't demonize Judas. Did Judas repent? Do you know that the uh, prefix to this word, okay, that they translate remorse is the same prefix for the word repent. And if you think about it, Judas did two things. Number one, Judas did give retribution, or, or what's the word? Um, reconciliation, restitution, thank you. Judas did restitution. He gave the money back, all right? Number two, he confessed his sin. He said, I have betrayed an innocent man. If you think about it, there was nobody who was in a better position to testify against Jesus than Judas. He'd lived with him for three years, number one. And number two, he had more motivation to come up with failures of Jesus than anybody else. That man, having taken the blood money, having betrayed his Lord, having assured that his Lord would die, that man said he was innocent. All right? He did restitution, he took the money back, and he confessed. And notice how he confessed. It's very interesting. His confession is very, very clear. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. There's some of you who are parents who have never gotten such a straightforward confession of sin from any of your children. Not I have sinned, but not you said, but I, and, and uh, I was, but I, you know. Judas didn't say to the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, you led me into sin, but I have my share of guilt. He said, I have sinned. So he made restitution, and he confessed his sin, and he manned up and did it without blame shifting. Okay? And yet what? He felt remorse. He said, I've sinned. He returned to 30. And they said, what? The religious leaders said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. All right, listen. Here's the first application. The first application is you can't trust your religious leaders. If the Bible again and again and again and again and again tells you that simple envy caused them to kill Christ, 
to plot to kill him, to plan to kill him, to hate him. If the Bible shows you account after account after account of the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders trying to shut up the apostles from preaching the gospel, and if all of church history can basically be summed up by saying that vital Christian faith has always, in all ages, all through time, been opposed by the church. That's a title of a book by John Newton. In my library, I have it. Why would you think today that you can trust the most famous, most successful, best-selling religious leader? It's insane. Get a clue. If Scripture shows you that the top leaders are usually corrupt, this is not the one period of time that Judas isn't helpful and that Hebrews isn't helpful and that we can trust our religious leaders. I mean, you think about, just from a statistical basis, what a thin limb we're out on in the way we approach Scripture. We're always the exception. Always the exception. We're the one time where you can trust religious leaders, especially the ones that are rich and famous. What's that about? Well, if that's what you think, you probably voted for Barack Obama. Now, I'm not making a political statement, but come on. If things sound like they're going to be good, and that if we just cast our lot in with this man, because the whole world is going after him. I remember a few years ago, there was a man who returned after moving to a certain city. And when he returned, we were were at a party together, and he went on and on and on with me about what a great new pastor he had and what a great new church it was. On and on and on and on and on. How Sunday evenings, they'd have world-famous Christians by video conference preaching to them. And then he listed the names of the world-famous Christians, right? And then what? A couple of years later, the man was found to have been consorting with male prostitutes, right? The whole world went after him, you know? Look, when Judas confessed his sin to these muckety mucks, these men that had risen to the very top of the religious establishment, these men that had royalties out the wazoo, these men that had every single magazine trying to get interviews with them, When Judas came with a heart that was broken by his sin to them, what did they say to him as he tried to process his guilt? What did they say to him? What they said to him is, (laughs) what is that to us? Take care of it yourself. So apparently these religious leaders had no interest whatsoever in the souls of men. And so the first application is, if the Bible gives you a record, it's helpful, it's profitable. Take it seriously. doesn't mean disrespect your religious authorities, but it does mean do what they tell you, but don't do as they do. And I'm just quoting Jesus. As I've gotten older, I've realized that I spent my life trying to be successful. It's been mostly a disappointing enterprise. 
But as I've gotten older, I've also come to see that God's mercy to me and not allowing me to be successful. I remember when I left DCC, I remember my wife saying to me that it was God's mercy because of how proud I would have been if I had stayed there. (laughs) By the way, if you're single, that's the kind of wife you want to look for. Number two. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart because it is not true that it's never too late to repent. It was too late. He had had his chance. And sin, temptation, having conceived, gave birth to judgment and to hell. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because if you do, you will not enter the rest. I don't care what prayer you've prayed. I don't care who baptized you, even if the Apostle Paul did. I don't care who your father or your mother was. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because if you do, you will not enter the rest. Number three. If you have betrayed innocent blood... Come to Jesus. He will not cast you out. He will never cast you out. He says, those who come to me, I will never cast out. And so he commands you to come. It's humbling because you come with nothing in your hands except your sin. But but that sin that you carry in your hands is the price of entry. It is the admission price to the grace of God. It's the thing you want to hide. It's the thing you want to bear yourself. And Judas bore, he bore it into hell. And today, now, he is in hell in torment. Because he wouldn't come to Jesus holding his sin and trusting the blood of his master for the forgiveness of that sin. You know, many people say that the worst sin of Judas was not the betrayal of the Lord, but the refusal to trust in the mercy of the Heavenly Father for that betrayal. 